If I were to ask you the following question, how would you answer this? What object makes up that which is essential for human life? What object makes up that which is essential for human life? It's probably one of those annoying questions or riddles where everyone has an answer that's technically correct, but it's not the answer the person is looking for. Some people would probably say, well, of course, the human heart. Others would say the brain or lungs or blood. And although those are all necessary for life, they do not alone make up human life. A heart, even if artificially stimulated to pump, is not human life. The blood that drained down your kitchen sink the last time you cut yourself while cooking did not create human life running around somewhere in the sewers? The answer is so simple that we overlook it. The answer is so obvious that if this were a riddle and I gave you the answer, you'd say, oh, come on. The answer is the human body, the sum of all of those essential organs working together. For all intents and purposes, the human body is what makes up human physical life. So what is it, for all intents and purposes, that makes up spiritual life? It is the gospel. The gospel. And like, human, like the human body, there are key parts of the gospel that are necessary. And there are other parts that are helpful, but not essential. Human life can exist with someone who is missing legs or an arm or an eye, or even one of his lungs. And just as we often get caught up focusing on the non-essential things of the human body, such as putting makeup on our faces or combing our hair, we do so often while neglecting the health of our hearts and our lungs. And so too with the gospel as believers, we would do well to be reminded of the essential before we lose ourselves in the non-essential. This morning, the Apostle Paul helps us with that. He reminds, of the, reminds us of those essentials in two verses that contain the entirety of the gospel message. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4. As you turn there, I would make mention that I have told you before that if you do not have a long opportunity to share the gospel with an unbeliever, Perhaps you just have a matter of seconds, less than a minute, as you meet a stranger at a bus stop and their bus is pulling up, you can memorize and quote these two verses and you have shared the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to to the Scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, we have the Gospel, the essential elements of the Gospel. It is not spiritual gifts. It is not women's roles. It is not heterosexuality. It is these key components of Jesus Christ and what He died, what He did for us. He died. And I want to unpack this. I want to go deep. I want to get a little theological with you this morning so you fully understand what all of this means. 
which is why in just these two verses, I want to give you six indispensable components of the gospel. Six indispensable, essential, fundamental, necessary components of the gospel. The first indispensable component of the gospel is the proclamation. The proclamation. He says, again, I'll read for you the beginning of verse 3. Speaking to the Corinthians, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The first point is not a fact of the gospel message, but it is crucial. In Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15, Paul also writes then this, How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. It's not part of the gospel like the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are. But no one will hear the gospel if you don't preach it. None of us would be here if nobody had proclaimed it. It's fitting that Romans, which I just read, was written by Paul, who is the one who has delivered this very message to the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago. I mentioned last week that Paul is in the middle of the chain that has passed on the gospel through the ages. He is neither the first nor the last to do so, but he faithfully delivered that which he received. The word in the Greek delivered means to pass on, or specifically in this context, to pass on authoritative teaching. It is something not just within Christianity, but it was something that was common back then. Word of mouth, passing it on. You didn't have the printing press. You didn't have social media. You didn't have modern media, the news. And so people would deliver news. They would pass it on what they had received. And here, of course, he's speaking of the gospel. And all he did was take it from someone and then give it, pass it on. He did not alter it in any way. He did not lay claim to its authorship. He did not see himself as better than those who misinterpreted it or did not have it, the many false religions of his day. He just took it, received it, repented, and then gave it to others, many others. He makes it clear that he received it. Although living at the same time, we have no indication that Paul was an eyewitness to Christ's ministry. He had to be told the gospel. We know there was a strong tradition already of passing on the truth back then, specifically among those whom Paul is now considered a co-laborer, the apostles, the early church. We also know that Paul speaks of Christ, telling him directly these truths through direct revelation. We saw this back in chapter 11 regarding the Lord's Supper, which you received from the Lord, not the apostles, as well as regarding the gospel in Galatians 1.12, that he received it directly from Jesus Christ. But here's the point. This delivered-received partnership shows that even the great and influential Apostle Paul was merely one in a long series of Christians who continued on the tradition of passing on that which they received. And so are we. We have received, we must deliver. The fundamental truths of the Christian faith on which the Christian life, the Christian identity, and Christian salvation experience are built. 
I talked about this a lot last week. We don't need to talk about it too much, but we need to do this. We need to be more passionate about delivering the gospel than we are the forms for work on time before we clock out. More passionate than we are about delivering our views on COVID, on politics, on war. As serious as those things are, we must be more passionate about this. You have all been blessed. Most of you, I should say, have been blessed recently. Not so much by the strength of the president of Ukraine, not so much by the people who are standing firm, not so much by the 70-year-old men who are trying to enlist in the military to fight, but you as Christians have been blessed by the videos of Ukrainian Christians singing hymns in the subways in which they now sleep as bombs are dropped overhead. Because even in that joy, even in that blessing, you understand what is the priority, what is the most important thing, the gospel and all the fruits of it. You may not be commanded to be a teacher or a pastor, but you are commanded to be a part of this evangelism continuum, to continue the chain, to pass the baton. And as I challenged you last time, pass it on just as someone passed it on to you. But I want to put it another way this morning. That individual that shared the gospel with you, what if they didn't? Thankfully, since you are here, that's merely a hypothetical. But are you making that hypothetical a reality for somebody else? What is it that you are to pass on? The gospel. And as Paul says here, namely that which is of first importance, the most important thing. In other words, first is in terms of logic and significance, not time. The gospel is of primary importance. It is the most important thing. For us as current existing Christians, yes, but in the context, he's talking about delivering the gospel. Preach the word, my friends. And so that's the proclamation. Let's move on to see what exactly was proclaimed, that we are to proclaim the components that make up this all-important good news. Our second indispensable component of the gospel is the penalty. The penalty you know this, we don't need to read it. In verse 3, he says, Christ died. Fundamental to the gospel and the Christian life is that Christ died. This has been called the primary or central tenet of the Christian faith. This is a matter of fact and history, and the grammar tells us it was a singular past event. And in, in order to die, this presupposed that he was human. We know from the Scriptures that he was a man, 100% human. By the way, as a side note, when I say that the full gospel can be preached just by quoting these verses, you say, but don't we need to share that Christ was 100% human? Well, it is implied right here, the fact that he died. He had a human birth recorded for us in the gospels. 
He had human growth and development just like all of us have, just like the children next door. Luke 2.40 said that the child, speaking of Jesus, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. We know from the Gospels that he had a human lineage, a human ancestry that's recorded for us in Matthew and Luke. He had half-brothers and sisters. Why? Because Joseph was not his biological father. In Mark 6, he is recognized as the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. He had a human appearance and human experiences. He wept. He got tired. He had to sleep to recharge. He became hungry. He became thirsty. And people who saw him saw him as he was, a man, not a vision that was there and then disappeared, not an angel, but a man who preached and then walked, got in a boat, ate, slept. He even had a human relationship with God, praying to Him for help, asking for aid or intervention. And so, He was able to die. But He didn't die for no reason. There was a purpose, as you know. And Paul continues in verse 3 to say that it was for our sins. Which leads us to our third indispensable component of the gospel. The purpose. For our sins according to the Scriptures. There was a reason Christ died. And the reason He died and came in the first place for that matter was to pay for our sins. The penalty of death seen in our last point was not a penalty He earned nor deserved. It was in our place, in your place. The for and for our sins means on behalf of, in lieu of, instead of you. Because of our rebellion evidenced in those sins, we were alienated from God. The just penalty is death and eternal damnation. And this was not something Christ had to do. He didn't have to do it in the sense that mankind's rebellion somehow diminished God's existence. That if nobody came and paid the penalty once and for all for those sins, that God would somehow disappear, be obliterated. You understand that sin resulting in eternal punishment, that eternal punishment is both righteous and glorifying to God. He didn't have to die for us for His own sake. But He loved us. And so He did. For us to be redeemed and to be removed from that alienation from our Creator, He had to die. In other words, He didn't die for Him. He died for us. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus tells us that He came to give His life as a ransom. For many. A ransom. A ransom frees people. It lets people go. What were we enslaved to? What were we, where were we imprisoned? To our own sin and rebellion, our alienation, our war with God. As we've seen, this death didn't merely earn for us forgiveness of past sins, but also for the present. We live in that forgiveness today. Deliverance from the enslavement, the bondage to that sin. 
This is all language of atonement. Perhaps you've heard that term before. Atone means to make amends or reparation for an offense or a crime, to make up for errors or deficiencies, like a criminal paying a fine or going to prison to atone for that crime. But unlike the criminal, there is no way we can pay for our crimes, so Christ did it on our behalf. This concept of atoning or atonement is found throughout the Old Testament where it points to Jesus Christ in whom it was fulfilled. There is a related theological term, a sister term that you may have heard before, propitiation. To propitiate in the English language means to conciliate, to appease, or make favorably inclined. As a propitiation for our sins, Jesus appeased the wrath of God that was aimed at us because of those sins. In 1 John 4.10, says God sent His Son to be the propitiation, the appeasement for our sins. Romans 3.25 tells us that God displayed Jesus Christ publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Don't get caught up in those fancy words, atonement and propitiation. Just know and appreciate and remember that Christ died not for his own sins, but for your sins. Not as a hypothetical general principle. Not like Americans or America does this for you personally, you as an individual, every one of those sins that you have committed since the day you were born. This is very personal. And Paul tells us it's personal. He doesn't say that Christ died for sins in general, but for our sins as the people of God. Later in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's the purpose. The penalty and the purpose, of course, go hand in hand. But there's a fourth indispensable component of the gospel that I'd like to share with you, and that is the proof. The proof. In the first few words of verse 4, we are told that Jesus Christ was buried. This is a small but significant point. It will be short in our outline. And the reason I call it the proof is this. You don't bury someone who's not dead. You also don't bury a ghost. You don't bury a spirit. You don't bury a vision or a dream. The reality of the human death of Jesus Christ is made more clear by His burial. A human corpse was put in a grave. It was buried. But also, the fact that there is proof of His death also makes His resurrection real. Again, not a spirit or some sort of phantom, but a dead corpse, a dead man raised to life. And that leads us to our fifth indispensable component of the gospel, the power. The power. Continuing in verse 4, it says, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. 
This whole chapter is about the resurrection, so I don't want to go into too much detail here. We'll talk about this a lot. As I mentioned last week, he's bringing up the gospel in these first few verses to correct the Corinthians' wrong thinking regarding the resurrection, which we'll talk about throughout chapter 15 to the very end. But there are some foundational principles about Christ's resurrection that I want to share with you this morning and that we'll see over and over again over the next few weeks. A lot of what we need to understand about the resurrection of Christ comes from the grammar that he uses here. We know it is passive, meaning he was raised by someone. He didn't raise himself, although other portions of Scripture indicate that all three members of the Trinity were involved. But we know that this was the plan and purposes of God the Father. He was raised by God the Father, as we will be one day. But also the word raised is in the perfect tense. And what that means is this past action that occurred 2,000 years ago does not remain in the past. There are continuing effects going on today. In other words, Jesus Christ continues in His risen state, and that risen state was unto a new state of affairs that continues on until eternity. We understand this to be the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. We understand this to be a continuing reality in the life of the church and its influence and impact on an unbelieving world. Everything we believe, everything we do, every moment of worship, every day that we walk in the grace of God is because He was raised and the grammar tells us that there are continuing effects today. This service is one of those trillions of continuing effects of the resurrection today. All that to say, the resurrection is indeed a powerful testimony to the victory of God over sin and death, but not limited to a one-time event or one-time impact. The resurrection changed the world and continues to do so. This is, in part, due to the fact that, as Romans 6, 9 tells us, Jesus was raised from the dead and is never to die again. He wasn't raised and then lived until He was 90 and then died again. He was raised unto a glorified body. Thus, death is no longer master over Him. Death is no longer master over those who trust in Him. We know that this resurrection occurred on the third day, as Paul says here, after his death. In other words, there was the day of his death, the next day, and then the day after that he was raised. This is pictured in our celebration of Good Friday, day one. Saturday would be day two. And then resurrection Sunday, day three. And what the Corinthians are confused about, as we'll see in the weeks to come, is not so much the resurrection of Christ, but the resurrection, the future resurrection of saints, of believers. But the reason that Paul states with, starts with the resurrection of Christ is because He is the firstfruits of those who will be resurrected after Him and because of Him. Verse 20 talks about this. And it all works together. What he will later say is if you don't think there is a resurrection of the human dead, then that impacts the resurrection or at least your understanding 
of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He will go on to say, if there's no resurrection of all of us someday, then you're essentially saying there was no resurrection of Jesus Christ, and if there was no resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're all to be pitied and laughed at because our faith is worthless. But that's the power, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Finally, let's look at Paul's basis for believing and preaching this. Our final indispensable component of the gospel is the plan. The plan. We've seen the proclamation, the penalty, the purpose, the proof, the power, and now the plan. If you really like peas, you could also call this the pattern, the prophecy. They all work. You noticed I kind of glanced over and have now come back to in the end of verse 3 and the end of verse 4 that little phrase, according to the Scriptures. All three components we have seen, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, were foretold in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, a great prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 Verses 5 through 12. So clearly speaking of Jesus Christ, that there are many rabbis in Jewish synagogues that will skip this chapter. Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 12. As you turn there, by the way, because I said what I just said. I was told by someone who does a lot of ministry to Jews once. He said a good way that he witnesses to them, especially if they're devout Jews, is he will print out Isaiah 53 without the word Isaiah or 53 or the verse markings. And he says, can you read this for me? And of course, the person knows he's a believer And he'll start reading it and he'll kind of roll his eyes like, who's that talking about? He says, that's talking about Jesus Christ, who you people think is the Messiah. And even as a devout Jew, some of them will not know where that's from because, again, a lot of their upbringing, they leave this out. And that believer will then say, not this is from Isaiah. He'll say, this is from your prophet, Isaiah. Chapter 53. Let's read verses 5 through 12. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. You remember this? Even at the trial, they had to force him to agree with what the Jews were saying. And never did he say, you know who I am? How dare you? Get away from me. Don't touch me. He never said that in a way to attack or to defend himself. He even told Peter, 
put away your sword. Don't you know, I could call legions of angels. I'm not doing that. I don't need your sword. And then even regrew that guy's ear. Kept his mouth shut. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? You see that? That's us too. Isaiah understands it for his own people. We understand it's us. We deserved the stroke. It was our transgression. Verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Crucifixion was for criminals. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. We know the grave was donated to him by a wealthy man. Verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. There it is, satisfied, appeased, propitiation. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This was written long before Jesus' incarnation. And so when Paul says, according to the Scriptures, understanding that at that time, the Scriptures was primarily just the Old Testament The New Testament was being written, and here we have it, according to the Scriptures. You know this. Paul's saying, I'm not making this up. I'm not pulling this out of a hat. You know this. It was foretold long ago in Psalm 16.10. It says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. What is that? How do you not undergo decay as a human being? That's the resurrection. How do you know that? It's quoted by Peter in Acts 2 and Paul in Acts 13 in their sermons in reference to Christ's resurrection. And of course, you have Christ's foretelling of His own death and resurrection in the Gospels. You also have the sacrifice of Christ and the resulting atonement and forgiveness of sins ingrained in the very culture, fabric of the culture of His people, Israel. The Passover, the sacrificial system, the Day of Atonement, as well as in the Old Testament stories, in the Jewish history, such as Abraham's call to sacrifice Isaac, the resurrection seen in Jonah and the fish, both reiterated in the New Testament as a reference to Christ. Abraham and Isaac in Hebrews 11, Jonah by Christ in Matthew 12, verse 40. As Kyle read for us earlier, Psalm 22 is the great messianic psalm that prophesies Jesus Christ. The plan and purposes of God and Christ were in place before time began. This was not an unexpected reaction. God wasn't sitting in heaven, wringing His hands. 
They ate the fruit. What do I do? What do I do? Okay. You. You're going to become human. Well, this was the plan all along. Even before time was a thing. Even before time existed. This was not a last-ditch effort to fix a broken plan. This wasn't the team huddling up with the coaches saying, we thought we had this game. We thought we'd win by 20 points. What do we do now? We're down by five. He knew this was happened. It was foreordained, and to prove it, he wrote it in the Scriptures. None of this was a surprise. Some of the details, sure. But the major events of the gospel were all according to the Scriptures, and one by one, one after another, they were all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Even as someone who was trying to fake it and knew the Scriptures and said, I'm going to do these things, there's no way he would have fulfilled all of them. The plan all along of creation and humankind involved salvation. The plan all along involved broken people. But don't ever think or doubt for a moment that the plan wasn't perfect. Because it was, and it is, and it forever shall be. The perfect plan of God. And so, we have six indispensable components of the gospel. So what do we do? How do we respond to that? I am saved. That's in the past. I get their continuing effects. But what do I do with the gospel besides, well, preach it, of course. How does that impact me today on a day-by-day practical level besides just something that everything is based on? Well, we worship. As Jerry Bridges once said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Be reminded of the gospel. But let me be more specific. Six indispensable components of the gospel because of the proclamation. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Go. Go and do likewise. Preach the word. Preach the gospel. Be good? Yes. Be a good testimony? Absolutely. But don't forget to preach the word. Preach the gospel in its entirety. And as you've seen, it's quite simple. It's great if you have taken an evangelism class. Many of you have asked for us to have one here at this church. And there's different ways you can do it, different strategies. But in the end, what is going to save others is what saved you. And it wasn't changing your political views or your views on social morality. It wasn't coming to a church or attending a youth group. It was the gospel. Because of the proclamation, go. Go and do likewise. It is not my job to share the gospel with your friends. It is not your job to invite unbelievers to church hoping 
because they've never heard the gospel up to that point, that I will preach the gospel that day and not, for example, talk about head coverings. That's not my job. If you invite an unbeliever to church, I assume, not as your pastor, but as a fellow Christian, that they have heard the gospel from you before they ever enter those doors. If they're willing to come to church, hey, you want a, you want a quick evangelism class right now? Here's a good way to do it. Oh, I'm so glad you're coming to church. By the way, just so you're not lost, let me tell you what we believe just so we're on the same page. Right? You would want them to do the same for you. Hey, you want to be my plus one to this wedding? Nah, you didn't tell me everyone was dressed like Marvel characters or whatever, right? You want to know what's the dress code? What is it? Dinner? What is, you know, what are we going to? So I'm on the same page with everyone. Number two, because of the penalty that Christ died, gratitude. Humbly give thanks. Humbly give thanks to the Lord. There is no prayer in the New Testament that is commanded that is not intimately connected with thanksgiving. They are one and the same. Number three, because of the purpose for our sins, repent. Continue repenting. He died for your sins. He died so you can be free. So put off that sin in your life right now. Repent and pursue holiness. Because of the proof that He was buried, live. Live life to the fullest for Christ. Live in light of forgiveness and freedom from sin. Not dragging your feet because of the overwhelming guilt of something that God forgave you that you did 20 years ago. Even if that sin resulted in something tangible, in your body, in a child, in whatever, God has forgiven you. Live in light of forgiveness. You are freed from sin. You don't have to do it. You choose to do it. So choose not to. Because of the power that he was raised on the third day, hope. Hope. He was alive and he is still alive. He will come for us one day. We will be with him one day for eternity. And because of the power, expectantly hope for his return. Hope for eternity with him. And finally, because of the plan, according to the Scriptures, Trust. Trust. If that which was written came to pass in something as brutal and nasty as the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, as wonderful and miraculous as a sinless man, you can trust in His Word and everything else that it says. Because of the plan, trust. Trust in His Word. Trust in His sovereignty because the Word says He is sovereign. Trust that it will all come to pass. Trust that you are forgiven. Trust that you are not going to hell. Trust that He is coming one day again. Trust that you can repent and overcome that sin. Trust that you can have healthy relationships. Trust that your worship is an offering to the Lord. All because the Word 
says so. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your amazing plan of salvation. Thank You for the clarity of Your Word and the explanation of the details of the parts of the Gospel. May we be those who live in light of it, preaching, humbly giving thanks, worshiping, trusting, living in the freedom You have granted us. Thank You so much, Father. We can never love you as much as you love us. But Lord, help us to try with all our might. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand as we close.